Section 9 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 51 The Reform Agitation, Part 2. All through the autumn and winter, meetings were held in the great towns and cities to promote the cause of reform. They were, for the most part, mere demonstrations of numbers and every one of any sagacity knew perfectly well that it was by display of numbers the greatest effect would be produced upon the ministry therefore the meetings were usually preceded by processions and the attention of the public was turned far more to the processions than to the meetings hardly any one took the trouble to discuss what was said at the meetings but a constant public controversy was going on about the numerical strength of the processions a hundred witnesses on both sides of the dispute rushed to the newspapers to bear testimony to the length of time which a particular procession had occupied in passing a given point rival calculations were elaborately made to get at the number of persons marching which such a length of time implied the most extraordinary differences of calculation were exhibited it was a remarkable fact that the opponents of reform saw invariably a much smaller gathering than its supporters beheld the calculations of one set of observers brought out only hundreds where those of the other resulted in thousands a procession which one critic proved by the most elaborate and careful statistics to have contained quarter of a million of men a rival calculator was prepared to show could not by any possibility have contained more than ten or twelve thousand cooler observers than the professional partisans of one side or the other thought that the most significant feature of these demonstrations was the part taken by the organized trades associations of working men some of the processions were made up exclusively of the members of these organized trades unions they acted in strict deference to the resolutions and the discipline of their associations they were great in numbers and most imposing in their silent united strength they had grown into all that discipline and that power unpatronized by any manner of authority unrecognized by the law unless indeed where the law occasionally went out of its way to try to prevent or thwart the aims of their organization they had now grown to such strength that law and authority must see to make terms with them the most extravagant rumours as to their secret doings and purposes alarmed the timid and there can be no doubt that if a popular or social revolution were needed or were impending the action taken by the working men's associations would have been of incalculable moment to the cause it espoused as rank after rank of these men marched in quiet confidence through the principal streets of london the thought must have occurred to many minds that here was an entirely new element in the calculations alike of statesmen and of demagogues well capable of being made a new source of strength to the state under honest leadership and any really sound system of legislation but qualified also to become a source of serious public danger if misled by the demagogue or unfairly dealt with by the reactionary legislator some of these associations had supported great industrial strikes in which the judgment and the sympathies of all the classes that usually led was against them the capitalist and all who shared his immediate interests 
the employers, the rich of every kind, the aristocratic, the self-appointed public instructors, had all been against them, and they had nevertheless gone deliberately and stubbornly their own way. Sometimes they or the cause they represented had prevailed, often they and it had been defeated, but they had never acknowledged a defeat in principle, and they had kept on their own course undismayed, and as many would have put it, unconvinced and unreconciled. At this very time some of the doings of trades unions, or of those who took on themselves to represent the purposes of such organizations, were creating dismay in many parts of England, and were a subject of excited discussion everywhere over the country. It could not but be a matter of the gravest moment when the organization of labor, as it would once have been grandiloquently called, thus turned out of its own direct path and identified itself, its cause, its resources, and its discipline with any great political movement. Thus in England the year passed away. Men were organizing reform demonstrations on the one hand and showing the futility of them on the other. The calculations as to the lengths of processions and the time occupied in passing particular street corners or lamp-posts went on unceasing. Stout Tories vowed that the government never would yield to popular clamor. Not a few timid reformers hoped in their secret hearts that Lord Derby would really stand fast. Many liberals who could admit of no hope from the Tories were already prepared with the conviction that the government would risk all on the resolution to deny extended suffrage to the working classes. Not a few on both sides had a strong impression that Mr. Disraeli would do something to keep his friends in power, although they did not perhaps quite suspect that he was already engaged in the work of educating his party. While England was thus occupied, stirring events were taking place elsewhere. In the interval between the resignation of Lord Russell and the completion of Lord Derby's ministry, the Battle of Sedova had been fought. The leadership of Germany had been decisively won by Prussia. The humiliation of Olmutz had been avenged. Venetia had been added to Italy, Austria had been excluded from any share in German affairs, and Prussia and France had been placed in that position which M. Prévost Paradol likened to that of two express trains starting along the same line from opposite directions. The complete overthrow of Austria came with the shock of a bewildering surprise upon the great mass of the English public. Faith in the military strength of Austria had survived even the evidence of Solferino. English public instructors were for the most part as completely agreed about the utter incapacity of the Prussians for the business of war as if nobody had ever heard of Frederick the Great. Not many days before Sadova, a leading London newspaper had a description, half pitiful, half contemptuous, of the unfortunate shop-boys and young mechanics of whom the Prussian army was understood to be composed, being hurried and driven along to the front to make food for powder for the well-trained legions of Austria under the command of the irresistible Benedek. Just before the adjournment of Parliament for the recess, a great work of peace was accomplished perhaps the only work of peace then possible which could be mentioned after the warlike business of Sedova without producing the effect of an anticlimax. 
this was the completion of the atlantic cable on the evening of july twenty sixth eighteen sixty six the cable was laid between europe and america next day lord stanley as foreign minister was informed that perfect communication existed between england and the united states by means of the thread of wire that lay beneath the atlantic words of friendly congratulation and greeting were interchanged between the queen and the president of the united states ten years all but a month or two had gone by since mr cyrus w field the american promoter of the atlantic telegraph project had first tried to inspire cool and calculating men in london liverpool and manchester with some faith in his project he was not a scientific man he was not the inventor of the principle of interoceanic telegraphy he was not even the first man to propose that a company should be formed for the purpose of laying a cable beneath the atlantic so long before as eighteen forty five an attempt had been made by the monsieur Brett to induce the english government to assist them in a scheme of laying an electric wire to connect europe with america a plan for the purpose was actually registered but the government took no interest in the project probably regarding it as on par with the frequent applications which are made for the countenance and help of the treasury in the promotion of flying machines and of projectiles to destroy an enemy's fleet at a thousand miles distance but the achievement of the atlantic cable was none the less as distinctly the work of mr cyrus field as the discovery of america was that of columbus it was not he who first thought of doing the thing but it was he who first made up his mind that it could be done and showed the world how to do it and did it in the end the history of human invention has not a more inspiriting example of patience living down discouragement and perseverance triumphing over defeat the first attempt to lay the cable was made in eighteen fifty seven but the vessels engaged in the expedition had only got about three hundred miles from the west coast of ireland when the cable broke and the effort had to be given up for that year next year the enterprise was renewed upon a different principle two ships of war the agamemnon english and the niagara american sailed out together for the mid-atlantic where they were to part company having previously joined their cables and were each to make for their own shore each laying the line of wire as she went stormy weather arose suddenly and prevented the vessels from doing anything the cable was broken several times in the effort to lay it and at last the expedition returned another effort however was made that summer the cable was actually laid it did for a few days unite europe and america messages of congratulation passed along between the queen and the president of the united states the queen congratulated the president upon the successful completion of the great international work and was convinced that the president will unite with her in fervently hoping that the electric cable which now connects great britain with the united states will prove an additional link between the nations whose friendship is founded in their common interest and reciprocal esteem the rejoicings in america were exuberant suddenly however the signals became faint the messages grew inarticulate and before long the power of communication ceased altogether the cable became a mere cable again 
the wire that spoke with such a miraculous eloquence had become silent the construction of the cable had proved to be defective and a new principle had to be devised by science yet something definite had been accomplished it had been shown that a cable could be stretched and maintained under the ocean more than two miles deep and two thousand miles across another attempt was made in eighteen sixty five but it proved again a failure and the shivered cable had to be left for the time in the bed of the atlantic at last in eighteen sixty six the feat was accomplished and the atlantic cable was added to the realities of life it has now become a distinct part of our civilized system we have ceased to wonder at it we accept it and its consequent facts with as much composure as we take the existence of the inland telegraph or the penny post it seems hard now to understand how people got on when it took a fortnight to receive news from the united states since the success of the atlantic cable many telegraphic wires have been laid in the beds of oceans all england chafed as at an insufferable piece of negligence on the part of somebody the other day when it was found in a moment of national emergency that there was a lack of direct telegraphic communication between this country and the cape of good hope and that we could not ask a question of south africa and have an answer within a few minutes perhaps it may encourage future projectors and inventors to know that in the case of the atlantic cable as in that of the suez canal some of the highest scientific authority was given to proclaim the actual hopelessness the wild impracticability the sheer physical impossibility of such an enterprise having any success before the ships left this country with the cable wrote robert stevenson in eighteen fifty seven i was very publicly predicting as soon as they got into deep water a signal failure it was in fact inevitable nine years after the inevitable had been avoided the failure turned to success End of section 9